Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. James Risen is one of our most distinguished investigative reporters on the intelligence beat. His explosive scoops over the past decades are legendary. Risen won the 2006 Pulitzer for national reporting for his stories about President George W. Bush's warrantless wiretapping program. Risen was also a member of the New York Times reporting team that won the 2002 Pulitzer for explanatory reporting for coverage of the September 11th attacks and terrorism. He was also a member of the New York Times reporting team that was a finalist for the 1999 Pulitzer for international reporting for its coverage of the 1998 bombings of two U.S. embassies in East Africa. Among Jim Risen's best-selling book are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. He's here with me today to talk about his new book, The Last Honest Man, The CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys, and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. And that senator was Frank Church of Idaho, who in 1975 chaired an explosive investigation into the CIA's assassination plots against foreign leaders, its LSD drug experiments on unwitting Americans, and CIA spying on U.S. citizens. It's fair to say that without Frank Church, Congress never would have established oversight of U.S. intelligence operations and analysis. Jim Risen, welcome to Spy Talk. Some 40 years ago, a Senate committee headed by Frank Church of Idaho opened hearings into CIA covert activities, including assassinations, spying on Americans, and mind control. This was an unprecedented, extraordinary moment in time. The uh, Congress did not even have oversight of the intelligence community up to that time. So set the scene for us, please. And what, what, who was Frank Church and what was he trying to accomplish and why were these hearings even allowed? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Frank Church was a uh, liberal Democrat from Idaho. As you suggested, he was the last Democrat elected from the state of, to the Senate from the state of Idaho. Uh, he was a radical in his time. He, w- he had been radicalized by the Vietnam War. He came to believe that the United States was becoming a militaristic empire because uh, after his experience in fighting the Vietnam War, and he saw the intelligence community as a part of this growing militaristic empire. He didn't use the words deep state, that people use now, but he had the same sense that the uh, intelligence community had gone rogue in the uh, decades since it was created. There was no oversight at the time, and he wanted to be the first to really conduct oversight. Mm -hmm. As you you write in the book, uh, oversight amounted to the CIA director going up to the hill and whispering in the ear of the Senate barons, I think you call them, uh, of what they were doing, sort of cluing them in on the activities. But 
but not fully. Right. Yeah. I mean, they in the, the members, the leading members of Congress really didn't want to know anything about what the CIA was doing. Uh, they had a Cold War mentality that uh, they didn't want to be responsible for knowing any secrets. And as a result, the uh, intelligence community, the only person they ever had to respond, uh, you know, respond to was the president. And in most cases uh, in the Cold War, the presidents used the CIA as a secret political weapon for what they wanted done around the world. And if the CIA complied with those orders, then the president left them alone to do other things that they wanted. And so it was a virtually unchecked growth and power of the CIA uh, and the rest of the intelligence community for 30 years. Mm-hmm. The uh, hearings were kind of an outgrowth of the Watergate investigations and uh, the uh, prosecution of several White House officials, uh, almost two dozen, I think. Uh, and also the Pentagon Papers that had come out, uh, spilling some of the dirty secrets about Vietnam. Was was Frank Church alone in his crusade to bring the CIA to heel? No, not at all. I mean, as you suggested, it was part of a, the Church Committee was really part of a progressive moment of reform in the mid-1970s. Uh, the Vietnam War had left uh, many Americans uh, cynical and doubting the, the government for the first time in their lives, really. And then in the uh, early 70s, as you said, they had the leak of the Pentagon Papers uh, and a number of other disclosures about the FBI. Uh, and then Watergate happened uh, in uh, 1972, and then the uh, investigation dragged on into 1973 and 1974, leading to President Nixon's resignation. And the Church Committee came about in 1975, right after Watergate and right after the Democrats won a landslide victory in the midterm elections of 1974. And it was really Mike Mansfield, who was the Senate Majority Leader, had been wanting to conduct oversight of the intelligence community for his entire career and had always been stymied by the old powers within the Senate who didn't want to conduct any oversight. And he took advantage of uh, a, an amazing scoop by Cy Hirsch of the New York Times. In December 1974, Hirsch reported that the CIA had been conducting a massive domestic spying program against anti-war leaders and uh, other dissidents. And that became the predicate for the creation of the church committee and a similar committee in the house. Um, but the church committee was the dominant uh, committee and it was really Mansfield's uh, desire to, for the very first time, conduct oversight of the intelligence community. And mm. Frank Church was really eager to run this committee. Mm -hmm. And uh, he opened the hearings with a spectacular moment in which he lifted up a CIA poison dart gun, right. which got a lot of attention. And that was very intentional on his part, because there was not all that much interest, uh, ironically, in these hearings in the beginning, was there? Well, it was an, it was odd because uh, it came right after Watergate. 
Um, but the, uh, and so the, the country was kind of exhausted by water, mm -hmm. by the investigations of Watergate. Um, and so to, to begin a whole new year of investigations, it, it took a certain level of uh, enthusiasm. Uh, Church was, he was at first convinced that what the Church Committee was going to be was the Watergate 2.0 that they were going to be a sequel to the Watergate investigation of the Nixon administration and the abuses of the Nixon administration. But as soon as they got into investigating the CIA, they found that the abuses went way back before Nixon, and they went back to the Eisenhower and uh, Kennedy administrations and then the Johnson administration. Mm -hmm. And so they began to investigate long-standing uh, abuses like the assassinations of foreign leaders. And his first public hearing was about a CIA plot or scheme to use uh, poison dart guns to kill people. Yeah, that was a spectacular opening. And, and Church uh, uh, did it for exactly that reason, to, to uh, rustle up some public attention in a dramatic way to the hearings. I thought it was very interesting that you write that, uh, whereas the, the Watergate hearings were the hottest ticket in town, the, the seats weren't even full in the, in, the, right. in the church committee hearing. Right, right. Yeah, that was, it was, it was an odd uh, moment where, the, I think you could argue that the church committee investigated far more uh, than the Watergate committee ever did uh, and found many more abuses than Watergate did. But it was uh, hindered by the fact that Watergate had just happened. And so that the press was a little more cynical and skeptical of what church was finding than they had mm -hmm. been Watergate. Did, did Church get it all? Did Church and his committee get it all? Did they get all the important things that the CIA had gone off the reservation with and and exceeded its charter, you might say? No, I mean, there was no way to to cover everything. There had never been any oversight or any investigation for 30 years. And it was, you know, this brand new territory that nobody had had ever investigated. And so there was no way they could investigate everything. And they had to make some choices about what to focus on. And they focused primarily on, in the, in the first uh, part of their investigation, on the CIA's plots to uh, assassinate foreign leaders, uh, primarily Fidel Castro of Cuba. And they focused specifically on the CIA's efforts to uh, form an alliance with the mafia uh, to kill Castro. And look, they looked into how did the CIA end up working with uh, mobsters to uh, try to kill Castro and poison Castro. And it, it became the centerpiece of, of the uh, first part of their investigation. And it was a crazy story that nobody really knew about before, before the church committee. Was there general shock and awe on the part of the public to these uh, revelations? Yeah, I mean, there was eventually because uh, it was so crazy. The stories that they uncovered um, were so bizarre, and uh, they kind of made uh, Watergate look uh, tame <laughs> in comparison. I mean, the CIA working with the mafia, then they 
the other, probably the two hallmark investigations or landmark investigations that the church committee did was the investigation of the CIA's plots to kill foreign leaders and the FBI's harassment and abuse of Martin Luther King uh, that had gone on for years. Those two were the major uh, kind of historic investigations that brought both the CIA and the FBI into new scrutiny that they had never uh, endured before. And it, those two combined really led to a lot of the reforms that uh, the church committee recommended and, and helped get through uh, afterwards. Let's talk about some of those reforms. What do you think the major accomplishment of the committee was? Well, Frank Church, his main goal of the committee was to set the, set the stage for the creation of permanent intelligence oversight in the Senate. And he saw as his most important legacy the creation of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which didn't exist and had been uh, fought for uh, generations of senators and by the CIA. And within a, a couple months of the completion of the church committee, the Senate passed a vote, uh, uh, authorized the creation of a Senate Intelligence Committee. The House did the same about a uh, year later. And that was probably the most immediate, most important change because it brought uh, congressional oversight out into the open. Uh, but there were a, a number of other measures that they, that were the direct result of the church committee. Probably the most well-known is FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which uh, for the first time uh, brought the uh, national security eavesdropping under the rule of law. And uh, it's a deeply flawed law, as everyone knows today, but it, uh, it didn't exist prior to the church committee. There, was, there were no rules on... Uh, eavesdropping uh, for national security purposes. And then there was uh, one of the other major uh, consequences was the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was passed as a result of Church's separate but related investigation of the CIA's operation, uh, working with ITT in Chile and Lockheed's bribery uh, in um, Japan and other countries. Uh, he was working on that investigation at the same time. And then the other big things were the, uh, the change in the executive orders and presidential orders uh, governing the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the order pro prohibiting political assassination or assassinations uh, of foreign political leaders. The ban on assassinations was a direct result of a church committee. The a ban on the use of journalists was another one, which... The church committee investigated. There were a whole series of uh, reforms that really put the intelligence community under the rule of law. And uh, also there was a, a kind of a cultural change in Washington in which people in the CIA now knew that they faced uh, oversight and supervision and new rules and laws. And uh, it became, it, it really fundamentally changed the culture of the intelligence community. The leadership of the CIA uh, and certainly the uh, Gerald Ford White House really hated these hearings, 
resisted and fought fought back against them uh, in public and in private. Uh, but there were some quarters of the intel of the intelligence community who welcomed these reforms, saying, "Well, at least we know what the rules are." Right. We, we yeah. knew that we were operating in kind of uh, shadowy areas, and it, it could uh, blow up on us. So now we have rules, and we'll stay within. And we're going to get per- permission. This and this one of the effects was when when the CIA uh, got into waterboarding and other torture methods during the war on terror, they made sure to go to the Justice Department. They had a very pliable Justice Department to work with under George W. Bush. But they went to the Justice Department and said, put it in writing. Right, right. And then we'll do it. Right, right. I mean, the, the problem, of course, is that even with rules now in place by the, uh, from, as a result of the Church Committee, the CIA still violates those rules all the time, and they disobey the law and and they can conduct immoral and illicit acts. But there are still rules, and so it's not as a, it's like a creating a police force. Uh, creating a police force doesn't mean that nobody breaks the law after that. But you now have uh, laws in place, and that was the I think the central legacy of the Church Committee, and I think. You talk about the the CIA. This, there was a deep split, a cultural split that it continues to exist in the CIA, and I would I frame it in my book as between the Colby faction and the Helms faction. Uh, Richard Helms, who had been CIA director prior to the Church Committee and during the latter stages of Vietnam, uh, was he lied to. Frank Church under oath when he was being, uh, he was seeking confirmation to be ambassador to Iran after he'd been fired by Nixon as uh, CIA director. And uh, he then continued to resist while he was being prosecuted for perjury to Congress. He continued to resist uh, ever telling the truth to the church committee about Mm -hmm. CIA operations. But William Colby, who was his one of his successors, decided to cooperate, and he was CIA director while church, the church committee was going on, decided to cooperate much more than the Ford White House wanted him to, because he thought that there was a reason for congressional oversight. And um, he was fired as a result of cooperating too much with uh, church. And ever since, I think there's been a split within the intelligence community between those people who support what Helms did and those who support Colby. Oh, definitely. I mean, you can see that in the uh, militant defense of waterboarding that continues to this day. Right, right. Um, But we have to take a break for a minute. We'll be back in a sec. You know, it's so interesting. It's kind of a paradox here to publicly investigate covert activities. I mean, how do you solve that paradox? How do you, I mean, can you ever foresee more hearings like church committee hearing in the current, what you call illicit and immor- uh, uh, immoral activities? It's difficult. I mean, you all you have to do is look at the way the Senate Intelligence Committee was kind of uh, intimidated by the CIA while they were conducting their torture investigation. Uh, and the CIA was spying on the committee uh, to show you how difficult it is to conduct any real oversight these days. 
And the other problem is, of course, it's become so partisan that uh, especially Republicans like to use uh, uh, leaks from the intelligence community for political purposes to attack their enemies. And so um, one of the things that was really interesting about the church committee was it was fairly bipartisan. You had uh, a number of Republicans who supported what uh, on the committee who were fully on board with church, the way church handled the investigation. And uh, there were only a few issues on which they really, uh, there was a partisan divide. The most important one was over the church wasn't uh, argued that you couldn't prove that um, presidents knew about the assassination plots. And Gold, Barry Goldwater, who was on the committee, argued that he was just trying to protect the Kennedys by saying, mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, it was a bipartisan effort compared to what you see today. Hard to imagine hearings being held like that today with partisan rancor, and that's putting it kindly. Right. It's funny that, you know, the uh, Jim Jordan in the House and his new, what he calls the weaponization committee, mm -hmm. look at the weaponization of the federal government. He's calling that committee the new church committee. Hmm. And uh, he's that's the nickname they've been using to try to, you know, kind of uh, steal the steal the name for their own purposes, co-opt the name. And it, what they're doing is, is actually the exact opposite of what the church committee did. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, you used the term deep state you know, it was kind of an investigation under the church committee into the deep state, a rogue CIA, although that can be debated, too, of what, you know, because if the CIA was acting privately on the president's orders, right. uh, then it's hard to call them a rogue uh, elephant. So, right. but um, uh, how would you... That was the argument in the, at the time. That was the big argument of uh, whether or not they they were acting unilaterally or always under presidential authorization. Well, they certainly in their activities with in their liaison with the mafia to kill Fidel Castro, the Kennedys were entirely on board with that. Right, right. One of the things that I came away with convinced was that um, the CIA, you know, as it was, it was created in 1947 under Truman, and it was basically designed to be an intelligence collection and analysis agency. But I think under Eisenhower, when Eisenhower came in, he was very conscious of trying to avoid a military confrontation with the Soviets. And so he wanted to use the CIA for more covert ways of confronting the Soviets around the world. And as I think as long as the CIA was conducting the covert actions and coups that Eisenhower wanted him to do, he let he let Alan Dulles, the CIA director, uh, do what he wanted, and so I think you end up with a CIA that, on very big things, was following presidential authorization, uh, but on the lesser uh, operations that were even more secret, I think they were getting away with a lot of things that the presidents didn't know very much about, like MK Ultra, the mind control program. Um, while they were conducting coups in Iran and Guatemala and Cuba were trying to conduct them there, they were also doing a lot of things that I think Eisenhower gave them enormous leeway 
and Kennedy later enormous leeway to do what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of that uh, uh, was inspired by what you might call the Manchurian candidate effect, the idea that the Soviets were using mind control techniques and chemicals and so on to uh, sort of remotely control uh, agents to infiltrate the U.S. government. So the CIA said, well, let's do that. That's right. right. I mean, it, was, it was an absurd program that went so far off the rails. It was even... Uh, Sid Gottlieb, who ran the program, knew that he had to destroy all the documents uh, before he left the CIA in order to hide, uh, cover his tracks. Hmm. Yeah, uh, for people who were born after these hearings and may not be familiar, just briefly, uh, this involved uh, dropping pills into the drinks of unsuspecting bar patrons in San Francisco, LSD and so on. Well, it was it was a massive program. Actually, it involved thousands of people. Uh, they had um, safe houses in New York and San Francisco where they would lure uh, prostitutes and men to uh, to these houses and then drug them. Uh, they would also they, they it went to an industrial scale. They would uh, drug prison convicts. They would drug uh, university students and go to classes. The 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 there's still no real accounting for how many thousands of people uh, were, were given LSD unwittingly. I tried to uh, drill down to that uh, decades ago and managed to talk to a half a dozen people who told me with credibility, not, you know, people getting radio waves in their teeth, uh, uh, people who said they had been abducted and taken to particular military bases, secret parts of military bases, and interrogated with, you know, lights and drugs and so on for days on end and then released back into the population. And the problem with investigating the mind control stuff was that they don't know who picked them up, where, what happened, because they were drugged. Right. Well, it was very hard to document. Helms, Richard Helms, uh, who was CIA director for a number of years, uh, was very close with Sidney Gottlieb, who was the head of MK uh, MK Ultra program inside the CIA, and he was the chief uh, druggist for this program. And when uh, Helms retired, Gottlieb decided to retire, and they both agreed to destroy all the documents and all the records. Mm-hmm. And so ever since, it's become very difficult to uh, get a full accounting of the program. But one box they missed. And yeah, uh, there were some, some documents in a warehouse that were receipts, like um, uh, receipts for lunches and thing, and some uh, purchases mm-hmm. uh, that one uh, very enterprising journalist used for a book, I think, in the 70s. That was John Marks, uh, a former State Department intelligence officer. You right. talked about, uh, or you mentioned in passing, illicit and immoral acts currently. Mm-hmm. Name them. Well, over the last, uh, I was referring to the things that they've done since, in the name of the war on terror, uh, since 9-11, um, you know, targeted killings. The the CIA went uh, before before 9-11, in the decades between the Church Committee and 9-11, the CIA was primarily an intelligence gathering, an espionage organization. Its paramilitary wing had 
basically been uh, eliminated or dismantled after Vietnam. Uh, and then after 9-11, it became, the CIA became a war fighting uh, arm of the military again. And it became a leader in the uh, targeted killing uh, operations and in the use of torture and secret prisons and uh, the intelligence community, if you include the NSA, was involved in uh, domestic spying and um, CIA was involved in illicit monitoring of Americans, uh, all kinds of, uh, of intelligence gathering. So, and it, it created what we now see today, which is a surveillance regime of the United States government that is far more vast than it ever has been before. It's now been largely endorsed after many years of being covert and uh, under the table. It's now been largely endorsed by Congress. Hmm. Uh, Congress, which was uh, very pliable after 9-11 and in the years since, has gone along with a uh, creation of a surveillance state that didn't exist uh, prior to that. Vice President Dick Cheney worked arduously to roll back CIA reforms and uh, strictures. Uh, and that's how we ended up with waterboarding and other things like the surveillance state. Um, but even you're saying that even after the massive disclosures by Ed Snowden and, and others, that the surveillance of Americans is still ongoing and just as uh, off uh, off the rails as it was before. Yeah, I believe so. I think there's no doubt about it. It's been, if you just look at the laws that they've passed, you know, the laws they passed after our stories on the NSA and then the new amendments they passed after the Snowden disclosures, they essentially legitimized uh, the scale of NSA domestic spying. And uh, it's the, the main difference. I always think of the difference between the Bush years and the Obama years. Uh, those are the two presidencies that really gave us the post 9-11 surveillance state was the only real difference was that Obama wanted congressional support and congressional uh, uh, endorsement of what was going on. They didn't really change very much of what the Bush administration had been doing. And I think the main on when it came to torture, uh, the torture regime was stopped, but what Obama did instead was he decided to have the CIA kill people much more directly and much more uh, frequently. Bush had tried to, I think you could, if you overgeneralize a little bit, you could say that the Bush administration captured and tortured people, and uh, Obama changed that essentially to kill people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drone assassinations and uh, targeted yeah. killings, as they call them. Yeah, they, those accelerated and intensified under Obama, and it had the uh, politically advantageous effect of eliminating the need for torture. Because torture had become very radioactive politically, but if you kill somebody in Waziristan, yeah, then nobody will know about it. What does uh uh the the discord leak tell you about cia activities today that's a really mixed bag it's just fascinating the 
the, the flow of secret documents made available by uh, this airman, Jack Teixeira, uh, uh, it, it's provided a cornucopia of uh, material for intelligence reporters to sift through and diplomatic reporters to sift through. What, what's your take, your overall take on on the value of this leak to uh, to American citizens? Well, I think, uh, I guess I w- would step back and I have a, uh, a criticism of the way the press has handled it uh, rather than about the substance of the leaks themselves. Uh, and that is that I think there's a deep hypocrisy going on in the press over leaks um, where they are well, his his leaks are bad but the leaks we get are good yeah well no well it's even worse than that it's that uh we are going to write stories based on these documents but then we are going to say really nasty things about this guy and we're going to try to help him get caught mm-hmm. and the press went out of their way to make sure he was caught and then destroy his reputation and uh basically did everything but hand him on the on a silver platter to the FBI uh, while they were also writing stories based on the documents. And it was, I, I found rather disgusting to uh, both say that these documents, write stories about these documents, which you believe is in a, the public interest at the same time that you're decimating and destroying and discrediting the person who gave them to you. Hmm. It doesn't mean that the guy is a good guy. But yeah, it, he, he, it, just, we, it just means that there is a greater and greater disconnect in the press today between people who know about sources and people who just know about uh, data. And I think there's what I would call the Bellingcatization of the press today, where people just scrape the internet and do it kind of soullessly hmm. without thinking about um, the people involved. Anyway, so, that's my Jeremiah about the press. Yeah, right? yeah uh, and, and we <laughs> say what you will about, you know, attacking this young airman's uh, personality, but the more we've learned about him, the more uh, it's really a disturbing portrait of a, a, a ranting racist um Right, but they didn't know that. They didn't know that at the time. They only found that afterwards. And so they've written stories about that as kind of a post justification for outing him, in in my opinion. How should the press be handling these? Well, here's the question is like, do you think that these documents, that the publication of these stories is in the public interest? I would say yes. Sure. How did you get them? You got them from this guy. Or his comrades. And so you are going to, at the same time you're writing about how this is a great public service, you are going to discredit and destroy and make sure he's a, the, an arrest happens of the person who has given you these documents. And that shows to me, I'm not saying this guy's a good guy, but I'm saying it shows to me a change in the way the press behaves today. There are no, there are very few reporters, I think, left who understand how to deal with sources. Hmm. And um, 
this to me was a totally soulless, content-driven, hits-driven uh, effort uh, of data journalism overtaking national security reporting. If there's any intelligence reporter who does know how to handle sources and deal with them in confidence, it would be you. So how would you have handled these leaks had you learned about? The problem today is you've got everybody wants to be the first on Twitter to say something. And so rather than look for the person who was behind these things, they immediately they started a scraping the Internet and at every instance started putting out clues about where this guy was, who, he, where he was geolocated, all these things, rather than try to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And it was, it. I'm not saying that this guy is a good guy or anything. He's not your normal whistleblower. He's clearly has real mental issues and he's a racist. I'm not suggesting he's a good guy. But th- none of those things was known, were known at the time. Hmm. And so the yeah, first thing you would have done had you learned about the spreading of all these top secret documents around in this, this gamer group. Uh, I would have tried to find him and talk to him mm-hmm. I, myself. Before you know, writing about one of the it. things, and if you remember Edward Snowden, I talked to him about this several times. He, um, when he decided to leak the documents that he had from the NSA. He made a conscious decision not to come to the New York Times because my stories on the NSA, along with Eric Lishbaugh, had been held for a year by the New York Times under the Mm -hmm. demands of the White House. And so he decided not to come to us. But I, if he had come to me at that time, I would have told him to, I would have tried to meet with him and told him not to go public the way he did. And I I would have tried to, you know, uh, handle it where the source remains confidential. And I think that's, if you are going to, I guess I have a sense that as a journalist, if we are going to say this these secret documents that are highly classified that will get someone in trouble if they are known to be the source, when they take a risk to come to us with documents or when they have come, when they put them out, we have, and then we use them and we write stories based on them and claim that they are in the public interest. We have a responsibility to try to uh, figure out a way to, work with the source. Ultimately, this guy may have been so unbalanced that he would have gone off on his own anyway. Mm-hmm. Seems but, so. but there was no effort by anybody, as far as I can tell, to try to actually talk to him and figure things out before, as I said, putting out every breadcrumb that that they could find that could lead the FBI to his house. And I just find that, you know, maybe that's the way journalism is today, but it's certainly nothing that I recognize as journalism. There's no substitute for talking to your sources personally, finding out what they're trying to do, who they are, what their motivation is. Right. And to become kind of partners with them 
where it's a mutual aid society, you're going to protect them in exchange for access to the information. That's that's the way it works. Yeah, and maybe it doesn't always work, but you got to make the effort. Sure. Speaking of making efforts, one of the most interesting passages in your in your book, The Last Honest Man, um, is about Frank Church's motivations. How he was an intelligence officer in China at the uh, the end of the Civil War and communist triumph, uh, and he was he found the Chiang Kai Shek government that we were backing despicable, you know, and corrupt, self serving. Um, not worthy of American support. And then he saw, and then he witnessed the beginnings of the war in Vietnam, and he said, this isn't right either. What what brought you into investigating intelligence activities? What what was the motivation that spurred you to take this path instead of covering, say, Social Security or the White House or, you know? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I started at my, this is not, I did a lot of other things before I got into this. I, I was a business reporter and I covered economics and I came to the Washington Bureau of the LA Times uh, uh, to write about domestic economics uh, in the early 1990s. And um, then I, frankly, I got bored with covering economics. I covered uh you know, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department and the budget process. And, uh, dull, dull, dull. Well, yeah. And, uh, I, I finally asked, it's kind of a funny story. I asked my editors at the LA Times, you know, I want to cover something else. And they kept putting me off. And, uh, finally, after I, I told them I wanted to do something else, they said, well, we have this job where you, it's, half time covering the CIA and half time covering Latin American policy out of the state department. And I said, okay, I'll take that. And then I never covered Latin American policy out of the state department. I just, uh, started writing about the CIA and they never asked me about covering Latin American stories. So, (laughs) and that's how I, how I got into it. And then I realized it was kind of the perfect time because it was in the, uh, 1995 when I started covering it, and it was uh, right after the aim. Alder James was arrested a year after his arrest, and right after the end of the Cold War, and there was a whole generation of people leaving the CIA, either in bitterness because they got reprimanded in the Ames case, or just because the CIA was downsizing after the Cold War, and a lot of them were willing to talk, and there were the big difference was there were no leak investigations back then. Mm-hmm. You could talk to people and write stories and um, the the government wouldn't come after you. And uh, so that it was a gold, kind of a golden age for covering the CIA. And I developed a lot of sources during that time period that turned out to help be helpful after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um... Back then, in the 90s, there was like a half a dozen of us who covered intelligence activities. Now you can't, as they say, swing a dead cat in Washington and not hit an intelligence reporter. But right. it's not not many of them are taking the time to drill down deeply right. into these institutions like you have. Yeah, there's a lot of people who say that they cover national security or intelligence. Um, 
they put that on their Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's amazing to me to see, like today, uh, maybe I would sound like a curmudgeon, but there's a lot of people who they tweet out what the uh, statement from the CIA press office and they get it out before somebody else puts it out and they call that a, a scoop. Mm -hmm. sure. and that's, you know, kind of a different, a different approach. <laughs> well, it turns out that you and Frank Church are a very good match. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Risen, thanks so much for spending the time with us at Spy Talk. Your last book, I urge people to get it. It's really important. The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys, and one senator's fight to save democracy. I dare say you're trying to do the same thing. Thanks very much for your work, past and present. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our entire podcast archive available at our home at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please also check out the Spy Talk column on Substack, where my colleagues and I offer fresh reporting and analysis from the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Until then, I'm Jeff Stein. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.